Welcome to the Building Resilience Podcast, where we learn all about building resilience in ourselves and helping others build it too. We draw from the principles of positive psychology and coaching to help you face adversity and do more than just survive. We want you to thrive. We are certified life coaches and speech language pathologists, and we will help you manage your mind, your emotions, and become the very best version of yourself, version 2.0. Let's get started. This is Heather Stables and Leah Davidson, and this is the Building Resilience Podcast, episode 24, an interview with trauma expert, Dr. Eric Gentry. We are so excited to announce our very first guest today on the Building Resilience Podcast, none other than the incredible Dr. Eric Gentry. He is a master traumatologist with over 35 years of clinical experience with trauma, complex PTSD, personality disorders, and dissociation. He's an internationally recognized leader in the study of in treatment of traumatic stress and compassion fatigue. He's co-developed and introduced multiple training programs and has trained over 100,000 healthcare professionals over the last 20 years, including Leah and myself. He has written numerous chapters, papers, and peer-reviewed journal articles in the areas of traumatic stress and compassion fatigue, including forward-facing trauma therapy, healing the moral wound. He is the president and CEO of the Forward Facing Institute and the owner of Compassion Unlimited, a private psychotherapy training and consulting practice in Phoenix, Arizona. He is just incredible. I can't wait to get right into it. Please enjoy. So we are excited to have you, Dr. Eric Gentry. Welcome to Building Resilience Podcast. It's a privilege to be here. Grateful to get to do it. Yep. Awesome. Why don't you take just a few minutes to uh, tell us a little bit about yourself? I'm a psychotherapist. I've been in some type of practice working with trauma. I'm in my 38th year of doing that. So a long time. I've gotten old as a trauma clinician. You know, I worked in private practice for a lot of years before I did my doctoral work. And then I started my doctoral work in 1996 at Florida State. Went there to work with Charles Figley, who was one of the kind of founders of the field. And he was my dissertation chair, and I did an assistantship with him. And he and I started the very first Traumatology Institute on the planet at Florida State in 1997. And that stayed operational until 2001, and it wasn't making enough money for Florida State, so they were going to close it down. And I took it to University of South Florida, where it became the International Traumatology Institute. The same thing happened in academic politics with that, and that kind of dissipated. And in 2009, I and two other clinicians, we started the International Association of Trauma Professionals. Ran that till 2017 when we sold that to PESI. And lately, I've been for the past four years, I was a co owner for several years of the Arizona Trauma Institute, and now am the CEO and director of the Forward Facing Institute. So I've been training clinicians and treaters of traumatic stress for, for well over 20 years. And that's kind of what I do mostly. I still have a practice and still work with trauma survivors, but mostly I do writing and, and training with other professionals. Right. And I think that's where Heather and I stumbled across you is that you were still at the Arizona Trauma Institute. And we, we took some courses there and became just like, you know, your work was just so incredible to see how you have moved it to writing your forward facing trauma book and to starting up the therapy and the coaching. And so we're excited to have you and 
I feel like I'm almost like a fangirl because <laughs> I've watched your videos. I've learned so much from you. And Heather and I are going through your training and it is just, it's amazing. We, as we've mentioned before, and our audience knows we're also speech pathologists and we've worked with people who've had traumatic brain injury. So we spent a lot of time working with people who are suffering with PTSD. And as I mentioned in our conversation earlier, a lot of the people that we work with now, they don't have PTSD, but they often are still dealing with a lot of stress. And, you know, I was hoping that you can share with us, like, just give us some background on what actually is trauma. Why is it important for all of us to understand what trauma is? You know, th that question sort of like asking, what's a fast car? <laughs> you know, and when you compare a 70s Pinto with a, a late model Corolla, then that's a faster car. But when you compare that with a you know Jaguar, then it's, it's not as a fast car. And that's kind of depending on who's who's writing you read of what trauma is. You know, if you you look at the, the empirical definition of it, it's PTSD. You know, it's, it's meeting all the diagnostic criteria for PTSD. But Francine Shapiro, with her kind of advent of uh, EMDR and in the early 90s, what she was noticing with treating the folks with, with EMDR was that there were a lot of people that were having symptoms generated from subclinical, you know, things that would not meet criterion A, which is actual threatened death, serious injury, or sexual violence. Like it wasn't, it didn't, it didn't climb to that threshold, but it was still something that was painful and it was producing symptoms here in the presence. So she kind of stratified that between uppercase T traumas that meet criterion A and then lowercase T traumas that are any experience that intrude into the perceptual system of the present, causing somebody to perceive threat. And, you know, when you cook down what traumatic stress is, there, there's a lot of factors to it. Um, but the simplest way to understand what, what happens after a person experiences trauma is that memory during the time of the trauma, it gets encoded with a lot of energy and it's all sensory. So it's all, it's all encoded with the smells, the sounds, the images, the feelings in the body. So what happens is anytime in the future that a person encounters a situation that's any way similar to that situation sensorially, you know, it smells the same, it sounds the same, it feels the same, then it activates that memory, which then intrudes into the perceptual system, usually subcortically, usually unconscious, but it is in the perceptual system. So the person's looking through a pair of glasses of fear as that all comes forward and they perceive threat here in the present where there is little or no danger. I mean, if you want to kind of really get to the essence of what traumatic stress is, that's the cause of it, is the perception of threat where there is little or no danger. Then what happens is, you know, all the autonomic functions then go haywire from there. And, and that's what generates all the symptoms for all of our clients. So that's a simple explanation of uh, what takes me an hour to do in, in the certification course. I did that in like two minutes, I think. Yeah. Perfect. Well, uh -huh. I was just going to say in the, we took the certified clinical trauma specialist course and, you know, burned in my brain as when healing trauma, it's simple, but not easy. You know, simple, but not easy. I, I find myself saying it all the time. <laughs> but that simplicity has been a long time coming because, you know, in the 90s, it was not simple. It was really complex. And we had all kinds of these different warring ideas. And in my work over the past 20 years, and not just me, but a bunch of people, is that we've been able to cook that down 
and show that when you complete four therapeutic tasks, you no longer meet diagnostic criteria. And that's what all the effective treatments do is they, they complete those four tasks. And, you know, one of the things that I'm excited to talk to you guys about is how that it does not take a, a licensed clinician to be able to complete those four tasks in somebody's life. Right, right. While all the, the evidence-based treatments used by clinicians do those things, there's also a vector to be able to do that peer-to-peer. -peer. In your opinion, what's the difference between um, therapy and coaching? Because I know there's different stages that you've mentioned, and the, the top tier, or I guess the bottom tier, however you look at it, is the coaching piece. Let me do that in three strata instead of just two. Mm -hmm because there is uh there's psychotherapy there's coaching and then there's our forward facing coaching which is kind of a hybrid of both of those things psychotherapy is it's a medical process right now it is an intervention designed to treat a particular disorder a particular diagnosed condition which is then you know it's it's in an allopathic model which means that we diagnose the problem and we use a, a treatment that has demonstrated scientifically that it is effective for that particular condition and apply that particular treatment and and that is in essence what psychotherapy is I, I will refrain from getting on my soapbox for, about that right now. <laughs> you can get on it for a few minutes. Uh, we'll hear in a second. I, I, I will want to talk to you a, a little bit about salutogenesis and how that applies as a new paradigm for working with, especially with traumatic stress, to move it out of the allopathic medical model into something that is much more catalytic and accelerated and ergonomic for trauma survivors rather than this whole kind of diagnostic pathology paradigm that we're working in. Mm -hmm. But to answer your question, coaching in its kind of uh, essence is non-directive. You know, it, and it doesn't have an agenda. It's not trying to teach anything. It's not trying to, to get anybody to do anything. It's just, to, it, it is to help the individual to, uh, to clarify and to operationalize their goals, you know, what they want to get. So there's not particularly a health component to that, that the coach is attempting to, you know, underneath build the process of, of health for them. It's really just about goal attainment. You know, it's about moving the person towards how, where they want to get the things that they want to accomplish, even if those things might be, you know, a little bit uh, uh, self-destructive or not healthy. When I'm working as a coach, I'm their employee, helping them to navigate through their own personal roadblocks and, and helping them to become more signal and less noise and being able to uh, become more efficient in, in their pursuit of what it is that they want to do. And then we've developed this whole process of forward-facing coaching, which is resolving the negative effects of trauma without treating them. <laughs> um, it is, in essence, what we do is, uh, how much, how deep do I want to unpack this? Um, the, the reason why people breach their integrity is because they are perceiving threat, like I talked about. They're perceiving threat all over the place. And, and as a result of perceiving threat all day long, what happens is that our bodies activate and build energy. There's lots of energy. That energy is for an animal in danger to have the stamina and agility to either attack or evade the danger. Well, you know, mostly we're not in real danger. It's just perceptual stuff. It's, it's ego threats all day long. 
But what's happening is our sympathetic nervous system is getting more and more jacked up. And when the, when the energy in our body, if we're constantly perceiving a threat and not regulating it, then our brain functioning, the part of our frontal lobe that manages all that energy is going down. So if we stay in a situation of perceived threat without interrupting the physiological threat response in our body, the energy gets too high and our brain functioning gets too low. And against our will, we will act out with aggression or avoidance in those situations. Mm -hmm. We either become snarky, uh, passive aggressive, or uh, becoming even uh, overtly aggressive, angry with our words, or we'll skirt and try to get out of that situation. involuntarily you know we're not doing that it's not a a decision it is a compulsion because we're trying to escape situation that we perceive as threatening and that's all happening intuitively and instinctually right well the way that we treat trauma is that we help people to begin to confront those situations that they're in habitual breach of their integrity either by aggression or avoidance commission or omission like if they're, you know, habitually snarky with their partner or they yell at their children, um, they're doing that because they have too much energy in their body, not because they have a moral failure. It's right. just that there's too much energy and, and too little functioning of the neocortex. Well, what heals trauma is the ability to confront, to do exposure to either the memory or triggers of the memory the sensory things that we perceive in the world in a body that's relaxed. So that's called reciprocal inhibition is, and you can't have stress in a body whose muscles are relaxed Mm -hmm. simultaneously. Those two things cannot coexist. You know, once you bring a relaxed body, you don't have traumatic stress anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Which is fascinating. And I know in the podcast, we talked, if if people want to go back to, I think it's the episode, I can't remember the episode (laughs) number, but it's called getting to calm. And we talk about that, that when you are stressed in that response, first of all, your, your frontal part, you're not going to be able to access your prefrontal cortex. You have to move to calm. You have to move before you're able to do anything. And once you're in calm, you're not in stress. You can't be stressed while you're in that relaxed body, like you said. So just for people to go back, they may want to re-listen to getting to calm. And, you know, to take a broad view of that is in the the 20th century, we believed post-traumatic stress to be a psychological problem. What we've learned in the 21st century, it's a physiological problem. It's a physiological over-adaptation. There's too much energy in the body. Once, once you help a person to dissipate that energy in their body by discovering involuntarily constricted muscles, that, you know, when they're, as one of my clients says, when my shoulders are making out with my ears um, and, and I'm able to drop those back down, I'm able to intentionally release the constricted muscles in my body because I've been in a threat response, then I interrupt that state and I don't have traumatic stress for the next few moments. And the more that the person is able to catch and interrupt that threat response throughout the day, the less and less and less they are affected by the traumas of their past. Hmm. So it doesn't take an advanced degree to teach people to relax the muscles of their body does not take an advanced degree to help people to confront situations that are scary but not dangerous in a body that's relaxed and the more they do that the less they are going to be affected by the trauma a 
But in the coaching process, we're not talking about the trauma. We're talking about them living a much more intentional life, more principle-based life of being who and how they want to be. And what it takes for them to achieve that is they have to confront all those high-demand situations that they previously have perceived as threatening in a body that is downregulated and relaxed. And the more they do that, the more that they heal. So are there situations, though, where you do have to go back and sort of relive the trauma to work through it? And or I mean, because that's how we've always seen it. Like even just I was watching a TV show the other night and, and they were talking about somebody who had PTSD and going into therapy and having to relive those experiences and confront them and, and move through them. Is that change then you're saying? Well, yes, it, it has, um, you know, because in the 20th century, that's all we had. Right. We had imaginal exposure, which was taking people back to their memories. You know, if I saw in, in 1998, if I saw somebody that came to my door and they were an adult survivor of childhood sexual abuse, what we were doing in the first five, four or five or six sessions was preparing them to do memory work. Exactly. Yeah. We didn't get informed consent. We didn't, you know, it was just what the paradigm prescribed that we had to do. But over the past 10 years or so, 12 years, 15 years, there's been a, an increasingly burgeoning body of literature and, and clinical understanding that we have this other post-traumatic stress condition called complex PTSD, mm -hmm. which is a really different animal than simple PTSD, where simple PTSD comes from single incidents like, you know, combat or... Right natural disaster or motor vehicle accident, that's, that's a single incident. But mostly that's not what we're working with clinically. Mostly we're working with people that have ACE scores, you know, aversive childhood experiences. They have thousands of traumas right. throughout the course of their development. Yeah. And, and what we've learned is that all of those narrative approaches of where we sit people down and have them tell the story of their trauma just doesn't work very well. It actually causes harm for people who have all of that developmental trauma that alters their identity and they have a lot of struggle with relationships and not being able to function very well, um, trying to take them back, it just diminishes their ability, you know, what ability that they have to cope previously is, is it diminishes it even more. So what we've learned is that we've had to do more and more what we call in vivo exposure with those folks where we are helping them to get in relaxed bodies through self-regulating their own autonomic nervous system, and then being able to confront those situations. So, you know, if a person was in captivity, you know, throughout some time of their, their childhood by their, you know, their parents put them in, in the closet or something, and they were really afraid of closed spaces, mm -hmm. then, you know, clinically, what we would do with that person is not take them back to their memories first, we would help them to find spaces that they could go in and be enclosed for a little while that they were in control of it and they could do that in a relaxed body and the more that they're able to confront situations that are similar that scare them in a body that's relaxed what's happening is that they're lessening the next time they're in a, that situation the intrusion from the past is a little less intense so it desensitizes that whole process that's what happens is the more that trauma survivors can go forward in a body that is relaxed and confront, you know, the myriad of perceived threats that they have during the day, then the less and less and less they're being affected by the trauma. So that has become, at least for people, I think, who are on the sharp end of what's happening in the trauma field right now, when you look at people that specialize with treating complex PTSD, Janina Fisher and Peter Levine and Pat Ogden and, you know, um, 
some of those folks that have written a lot, Christine Courtois and uh, Marilyn Cloitra, those folks, they're really kind of eschewing imaginal exposure and replacing that with a kind of lifestyle living of trauma healing by helping them to practice this capacity to interrupt the threat response by relaxing their muscles more and more and more. And the more they do that, the less trauma they have, the more clear they're thinking, the more, the better they function. So we don't have to wait till we get the trauma work done for the person to have better quality of life. It happens immediately. And it's pretty steep right. curve for a whole lot of people to get better pretty quickly. But what we've now had to insert in the treatment process is what I've called in our new book, um, a, a mid-treatment assessment, where all the, all the symptoms of PTSD, there's four groups of symptoms, and those are uh, called intrusion, those are flashbacks and nightmares, mm -hmm. avoidance, which are avoidance of people and places or thoughts and feelings associated with, the tr with trauma, negative alterations in cognition and mood. Now, that's all the kind of uh, uh, negative perceptions of the world that is uh, dysregulation in their nervous system, that is distorted perception of oneself, all of those impacts. And then arousal and reactivity are the, there's 20 of those symptoms. Well, what's cool is that the avoidance, the negative alterations in cognition and mood and the arousal uh, stress symptoms mm -hmm. can all get treated with a therapeutic relationship, relaxed body and cognitive uh, restructuring, psychoeducation. So we teach people how to think better, get them in relaxed bodies and help them to be able to change the way that they think and the way that they act. Mm -hmm. It could be all treated with that. But if they have criterion B symptoms, which are flashbacks and nightmares, that requires exposure. That requires either confronting the memory or confronting situations in the present that have sensory similarity to the memory. Mm -hmm. So if we help them in the front of treatment to confront those situations in vivo, in the environment, in their lives. And then we, we check them out and in treatment and see what's happened with their symptom level of criterion B, of flashbacks and nightmares. If they're still having florid flashbacks and nightmares, then that means we give them a choice. I mean, what we do, what I do today and what I advocate is, you know, if they're still having flashbacks and nightmares, I want to say, well, what do you want to do about that? Mm -hmm. And they go, well, what do you mean? And I say, well, we got some choice. We can keep doing what we have been doing. And that seems like it's improving somewhat. And it would be my prediction that if you keep doing it, it's going to continue to get better. I'll be it a little slow, more slowly than if we want to go back and just knock it out. If we want to just resolve it, right. what would you like to do? So we give them that choice um, once they've been able to develop these skills and practice them because for me, I'm not willing to do any of that work. I'm not willing to do EMDR or hypnosis or take people back into the memories of their trauma unless they first can relax the muscles of their body. So we got to do that on the front end anyway. Right. And so we're helping them do that first and then checking and seeing if for 60% of my clients, we, and I work mostly with complex PTSD, we never go back. But for 40%, we do have to go back and do I'm movement desensitization or a, a narrative processing or, um, you know, some somatic work or, or something, little bigger guns right. to resolve that, uh, the effects of that trauma.
And that's I hope where that makes like, sense. Yeah, no, that totally does. And that's where the therapy would come in as opposed that's to where it's, that's yeah. that's a license. That's the, yeah, a license the bailiwick of a licensed clinician. You bet. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. So in, during the pandemic, I've been doing a lot of telehealth. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, what I tell them is that I will help you to heal your trauma, but we're only going to do it in the here and now. We're not going back. If you want or need that, you're going to need to consult with a clinician in your location, or you would need to come to Phoenix and work with me. Right. Um, if you want to do that. Mm-hmm. So I, for me, I just won't do uncovering in, in telehealth, except in very rare cases when I'm working with other professionals and they're really stable. Yeah. Um, but mostly I want to be in the same room. If I'm going to be unpacking trauma, I want to be in the same room with my clients. But that's that's my overprotective bias. It's probably a good bias to have. I think so. I'd rather err on that side. That's right. Mm-hmm. Well, and it goes back to, you know, the most important predictors of positive outcomes, which I loved because I can definitely relate to the relational aspect, you know, and I think you said 75% of the part that we as clinicians can control is relational. That's and right. Part is the tools. And, yeah. um, you know, when you look at that compared to Scott Miller's research on, um, how much better we think that we're doing than we are really doing. Mental health professionals perceive them to be six, themselves 65% more effective than they really are. That's a huge parallel. Yeah. Ego. That's huge. So, you know, every, cl- every clinician thinks they have a good therapeutic relationship, so they don't they don't address it. They build it at the beginning and then let, and let it go. And what we see is that it actually deteriorates. And that's why, you know, if you've done any of my training, I just strongly advocate that, that there's an ongoing feedback process where we are continuing to ask our clients to negatively evaluate us on what we're missing relationally. So we continue to repair any of those things, little tears in the relational fabric, little things that we've done that have irritated our clients, Mm -hmm. that we're repairing those consistently. So the therapeutic relationship continues to get better over time, which produces much better outcomes. You bet. Yeah, that was my question of what makes a good therapeutic relationship. Like, what are some of the criteria? Is it just having that connection, getting that feedback, asking for the feedback? Yes. Um, and to back all of that up, you know, I say something in some of the trainings that I do that it kind of, you know, I can watch clinicians when I say it in a, a live training, they kind of look at me and it, it's, it's a start. And I say, I am absolutely certain that most of client crises are a result of clinician anxiety. Hmm, really? that mostly client crises are clinician caused. And clinicians who are not able to self-regulate. That's right. That's right. Because if you're in a jacked up autonomic nervous system, then your clients cannot sustain Mm -hmm. connection with you. Right. That it becomes so painful because they're reading, you know, all this is happening subcortically. Uh, Stephen Ford just says, every relationship is a neural exercise. I love that. That's (laughs) as geeky as can be. But, you know, that's what in the 21st century, we're now kind of saddled with the responsibility of managing this whole underneath in the 20th century was never even talked about. I mean, co-regulation was not part of the lexicon of treatment in the 20th century. It's now essential. I mean, I think that the most important intervention that a clinician can do with a trauma survivor is to be in a parasympathetically dominant nervous system while they're sitting across from that they're consistently repairing themselves back to a relaxed body. And when I do that, then I leach the charge out of my clients. You know, they start 
being comfortable, they have, you know, two or three sessions of that, they have their first ever experience of feeling safe in the context of another human being. Right. That's the outcome right. of co-regulation is secure attachment. And I guess you can translate that too in, in things like a parent-child relationship or a relationship outside of anything therapeutic that, you know, to be able to co-regulate with your child, especially if your child is going through something, um, That's right. to be able to calm yourself down. I know that based on <laughs> how jacked up I could get with my kids. I wish I had this. Simple, but not easy. <laughs> oh, simple, but not easy. Sometimes we see, and that's our tendency, right? We see one of our kids having, you know, uh, seen getting all jacked up and what's our response, you know, to yell at them to stop it. And uh, we would do much better to learn how to regulate ourselves and help them regulate themselves. And, and to put that in a forward facing frame, what's likely happening is some of your developmental trauma in that situation is intruding into your perceptual system, causing you to perceive whatever your child's doing as a threat. And you are now, that's a, that's probably a low, lowercase t trauma, right. but it's still intruding. It's still producing that uh, all of that threat response. And it's still making you act in ways that are violations of your integrity. Right. So as you are able to relax into those situations with your children and bring your your behavior into intentional instead of it being reactive, then not only are you having a whole lot better quality of life and having, you know, self-acceptance and self-compassion as a parent and liking how you're doing it, not only all that stuff, but you're also healing the trauma of your development all in real time without ever thinking about it, without ever talking about it. It's just becoming less and less and less and less intrusive the more you confront those situations in a body that is relaxed. Mm -hmm. Because most of us have some of that small T trauma in there, developmental. Most of us are carrying around. We may just not be aware of it, but we're reacting. I think that's an inaccurate statement. Oh, okay. I would say that we all. Oh, are. okay, good. I was like, really? Because I think everybody at me, I'm like, you must have trauma. We've all had trauma. Uh -huh. I'm giving my kids trauma. <laughs> like yeah. So reeling that all the way back to what I said before is that, you know, in the broadest aperture of what a trauma is, is any painful learning experience that produces perceived threat in the future. Right. And, you know, the way I illustrate that is one day in junior high school. Do you guys have junior high schools there in mm -hmm. Canada? Yeah, close uh -huh. enough. Middle school. Uh, middle school. Okay. <laughs> one day in middle school taught most of us to perceive other people's judgment of us as a threat. And that happened in one day. Yeah. So imagine. And, you know, all of us ran into the mean girls. Yeah. Um, and, you know, all of us got humiliated and ridiculed through our nap, even the most popular of us, as we navigated through middle school, we got, we had a lot of painful learning in mm -hmm. that situation and that got encoded. So the next and future times we're in situations that somebody's evaluating us, you can bet that we're perceiving threat in those situations, even if we had really good parenting, right? Th yeah. that's going to have produced any painful learning. I mean, think about when you stub your toe, if you're going to the bathroom at night and you stub your toe on a piece of furniture and the next night you walk, you know, that same sensory, you are much more careful with foot placement. You didn't even think about it, but your foot placement is, is much more delicate. And that's the way that that was a painful learning experience that once you're in the same sensory place again, 
you know, that this was this that was encoded at the same time you stubbed right. your toe. That's coming forward, causing you to perceive threat while you're walking through your house. Mm -hmm. And that's how that works evolutionally. Yeah, it's is it helps us to adapt to a dangerous world. The problem is that us human beings encode all of those social experiences too as painful. And so we've got all of that social metric now, you know, 95% of the perceived threats I encounter through the day are about your judgment of me. They're not about, you know, tigers and, and flying reptiles and that type of stuff. Right. You know, it's, it's all about what will people think about yeah. me? And, and I'm pretty constantly around yeah. people, which means that I'm pretty constantly in a jacked up autonomic nervous system that if I don't regulate, I suffer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which shows the importance of everybody learning how to regulate, whether you have, a, you know, the big T trauma that we, everybody refers to. If you're human, you need to be regulating, you know, hundreds of times a day. You know, it's, I, I know in your book, you talk about, uh, it's not something that's ever really going to become automatic. It's not like you're going to be able to sit back and, oh, good, I've, I've learned how to regulate and I'm good for the rest of my life. It's, it's a constant thing. That's right. Because you have a, a, a high volume of painful learning experiences and you are consistently putting yourself in situations where there are sensory similar encounters in the present to those painful past learning situations. I mean, how many of the, how many painful learning experiences do you have in the context of other people? Yeah. On, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a myriad. It's, yeah. it's thousands, tens yeah. of thousands. Yeah. I don't know. It's a lot. Yeah. And how frequently are you interacting with people during the day? Mm -hmm. You know, and our nervous system is, uh, Joseph Ledoux talks about in his most recent book, it's really cool, the difference between fear and anxiety. And what fear is, he calls it the high road and, and the circuitry for fear goes through the frontal lobe, which means we're aware of it. You feel fear, like I'm afraid of, of driving on the road at night and you could feel that. Uh -huh. But their anxiety, he calls it, is on the low road. And that, that circuitry is all subcortical, which means that it never gets to the frontal lobe. Mm. What's that mean? That means that most of our threat responses are happening in our body completely beneath our awareness. We don't know that we're having threat responses throughout the day because we've learned to live dissociated from it. We stay in our heads. We stay involved in the environment. So we're not even aware. I mean, I can't tell you how many clients that I've had come in and see me and they'll sit in front of me with their leg bouncing up and down like that saying, no, I feel great. I'm not stressed. <laughs> and you know, a bouncing leg, leg is means they're so, so jacked up they can't even contain how much energy is in their body. It's involuntarily leaking out. That's what that mm -hmm. is. Huh? But they don't feel it. Right. They don't have awareness of it. They haven't labeled it's, it. Not even labeled. They don't know mm -hmm. it. Truly, they don't feel it except for the outcome of it, which are the symptoms, which are the GI symptoms, which are the headaches, which are the irritability and, and all of that stuff that it produces. Mm -hmm. But we do in forward-facing coaching is that we teach people to begin to develop this capacity called interoception, which is the ability to feel your body in real time. And once you feel your body, then you can discover, do I have any muscles in my body right now that are involuntarily constricted? And right now, yes, I do. My shoulders are, my belly is, my pelvis. Mm -hmm. And What's lovely about that is once I become aware that those muscles are constricted, 
and I release them as I did just right now. I am in a body that is comfortable. 100%. I am comfortable inside of my skin right now. I wasn't 20 seconds ago because I was all caught up in talking to you about all this stuff. I didn't even know that I was having a threat response. But as I turned my attention away from you and into my body, I discovered I was having a threat response here about, you know, what you're thinking about me, what your audience is going to think, you know, all of that Mm -hmm. stuff was all happening unconsciously. But as I attuned to my body and I interrupted it, interrupted the threat, discovered it and then interrupted it, is I returned back to being able to be comfortable. And when anybody who works with trauma gets their head fully around that, that every single one of our clients who have been suffering for years with traumatic stress is one second away from being able to be comfortable inside of their skin. That's pretty profound. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You just can't get it cognitively. Mm -hmm. That's right. You have to shift your gears out of your thinking into your body first. And once you relax the muscles of your body, then what happens is your neocortex reboot and you get back full functioning. People that have racing thoughts, I say, hold on. And they try to stop their racing thoughts by thinking, you know, and that's like, they just go faster on the hamster wheel. When I say, stop, hold on a second. Um, take just 10 seconds to do the wet noodle, which, you know, I talk to yeah, just, compl- we've, shared, we've shared Dr. Jensen's wet noodle. <laughs> just completely relax and, and soften the muscles in your body all the way down for 10 seconds. Then I count one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. 10. What's happening with your thoughts? And they go, huh, nothing. I say, cool, look at how that works. That's how you interrupt racing thoughts, not with thinking, but getting out of the threat response. Because when you understand what happens with the brain is when you get jacked up, your brain now shifts into protection, self-defense. And and the, the structures that you need to think are offline and the structures that save your bacon are function are over-functioning when there's no real danger relax your body, you get back your neocortex, and you're able to now do what is required for thinking, which is constructing language. For people that are having racing thoughts, what's happening is it's old language, intruding, constantly intruding, trying to get them out of the situations, trying to to save them from a danger that's not real. That's amazing. It's kind of cool. It's exciting to watch people... And I know a lot of our clients have racing thoughts. It's a common thing that people will, people will talk about, you know, anxiety and racing thoughts. And, and just to know that the, you know, there is relief one second away, just one second away. And your, your racing thoughts aren't pathology. Mm. They're over adaptation. Mm. You're perfectly adapted to a situation where there is real danger. It's just that there's not any real danger here. Right. So you're way, you, you got too many weapons and too much armor for a situation where there's just nothing that's really dangerous. And yeah. if there's nothing really dangerous, hello, you don't need a threat response. Right. So chill, interrupt that, find, find yourself back to comfort. And, you know, you cannot have stress in a body whose muscles relax. That just keeps being um, so simple and consistently elusive for me. Mm-hmm. But not even simple. That's right. That's right. I was going to say, it's such an effective tool, though, um, because it really, it puts the individual in the driver's seat. You know, there are many things in the world that we can't control, but this they can. It's very empowering. And, you know, I sometimes say with my tongue in my cheek to my clients, I say, um, 
you know, I do that part in the training where I ask you, what do you perceive to be the causes of your stress? And they, they right. have all those external things. Yeah. And then I tell them that these are not the cause of your stress and take them through a process to help them to learn that it's, it's their painful learning associated with each one of those things, that it's turning your threat response on and keeping it on. And that's what's causing all the distress. And so, you know, when, when people start to learn that the way that they've been trying to manage their threat response is to control the world. <laughs> and you can't control and, it. And it up, it, you end up being one of Marty Seligman's doggies, you know, getting <laughs> shocked all the time without the ability to do anything about it. And it just ends up with becoming demoralized. That's and, right. you know, I, so once my clients learn that, and they start telling me that they're they're suffering a little bit. And I say, well, it's isn't it a good thing that you are suffering while you are trying to control things that are beyond your control? Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. Because why would you stop if you weren't? So let's get your attention and energy focused on something that you have the power to control while you begin letting go of those things which are beyond your control. I think that's maturation. Yeah. I think that's a good definition for maturation is, is me having more and more signal and less and less noise, you know, that, that my energy and attention is focused where I have the ability to change. Mm, I love that. Right. It reminds me of the Victor Frankl um, quote in your forward facing trauma therapy book. Yeah. Well, anytime somebody tells me that they are reminded by Victor Frankl by me, that I will take that as the greatest compliment because <laughs> As know that I, I introduce him in my training as somebody who's more my father than my biological father. But I think that the quote that you're talking about is between stimulus and response, there's a space. And in, in that space is our power to choose our response. And in our response lies both our growth and our freedom. And when you think about people who are trauma survivors, whether that's capital T or lowercase t traumas, is they have no space. They have stimulus that is paired directly to the threat response. They, somebody, you know, somebody says something snarky to them and the space collapses and they're immediately in a self-defense behavior. There's no space in there. Stimulus, immediate reactivity. And what teaching people self-regulation to interrupt the threat response does is it puts the space back in there. So they can have the stimulus. Somebody says something critical to them and they can go, oh, wait a minute. How do I want to be mm -hmm. when people are being critical of me? I want to get down there and roll around the mud with them. See ya. And now I can become intentional instead of, instead of being who my painful past experiences have programmed me to. Once you start getting some space between stimulus and response, you can start being who you choose to be. And I just think that might be the most triumphant thing that a trauma survivor can do. Absolutely. And as we're wrapping up here, I know that as part of your training and in your book, and I know that you have another book coming out, you do talk about, you know, the learning how to self-regulate and then creating that intentional living. Can you talk to us a little bit about, I know you have the, your code of conduct and mission statement, and these are, you know, as I said, Heather and I went through your forward facing the me part where it's, it's the group. Um, and we were able to write our own uh, code of honor and, and mission statement. And that is really powerful. I actually have it hanging right in front of me over there that every single time I am going through, <laughs> I know I was thinking I'm going to have to like laminate or something. And I look over to it often, you know, how do I want to be?
be? Who do I want to be? So maybe if you just walk us through a little bit about that process, because I think it'll be really helpful for people. They can start thinking about it on their own. Yeah, the, the subtitle of um, the book that I published in 2016, the one you're talking about, it's, it, it, the title of it is Forward-Facing Trauma Therapy. The subtitle of it is Healing the Moral Wound. And, you know, the, there are multiple types of moral wounding that happen with trauma. There's an acute moral wounding of, of the Ronnie General Boomin way back in the, the, the late 80s wrote about shattered assumptions. It's where you lose your safety in the world, you lose your trust, you lose hope that all of those things get shattered when you when you become traumatized if you weren't before. Um, but the more insidious process of, of the moral wounding is people finding themselves consistently wanting to be one way and then acting in violation of their integrity that they cannot trust themselves to be who and how they choose to be. And people believe that to be moral weakness. They believe that there is something damaged, broken, afflicted with them. And so what we do in the forward-facing process is we first teach them to, to interrupt that threat response and then help them to start to discover that the reason why they're breaching their integrity in, in situations in their life is not because they're morally weak, is because they have too much energy in their body. They are having too much of a threat response, which is compelling them to self-defend in situations where there is no real danger. It's only perceived threat. And so what we do is help them to write a, a covenant or a personal mission statement and a code of honor. Covenant is your purpose on this planet. Why are you alive? Code of honor are the principles that, that define your behavior, the points on your own moral compass that you choose. And then what we do in the coaching process is help them to, to find the places they're in habitual breach. Where do they act in ways that are viol violations, habitually violating? their integrity, either by aggression, which is commission, they're doing something they don't want to do, or by omission, avoidance, they're not stepping to something that they want to step to. And we help them to walk into those situations in a relaxed body. And they come back to the next session, lit up, telling me about how they were able to have a conversation with their husband, and that it didn't devolve into, into uh, an argument or how that they sat on the bed with their, their five-year-old uh, reading the story to them, and they looked over and their five-year-old was asleep when the five-year-old never goes to, to sleep until, you know, that they can't get them to bed. Well, yeah, five-year-olds can't go to sleep if the adults around them are jacked up. Yeah. Um, so as they begin to, to relax into those high-demand situations in their lives, they start finding themselves able to be self-efficacious. They aim themselves to be this way and they come out of that situation, look back on it and go, yeah, that's how I want to be. And that for somebody that's been in a habitual breach, it just, it just lights focus up. And what's happening that whole time is they're doing exposure paired with relaxation. So right. the trauma is diminishing, but we're not even talking about that because what we're talking about is their life getting better and better and better and better. Right. And what they got to do for their life to get better and better and better is the same thing that heals the trauma. They only know about the trauma symptoms when we measure them. They don't even talk about them anymore because they're moving towards 
who and how they want to be and they're excited about it and so therapy instead of being something that's just arduous and you know i hate that <laughs> it's exciting because mostly i spend you know 40 minutes hearing stories of success from people mm -hmm. in my sessions yeah. about how jazzed they are and how well they're doing in those situations and, and who they're becoming who they're, and who they're becoming yeah that's right uh-huh yeah oh that is beautiful wow well, this has been so amazing. Thank you so much for for sharing. Can you tell us where people can find you? Where are you hanging uh, out <laughs> virtually right now? <laughs> in esteemable places at this juncture. <laughs> Wasn't always the case. I was uh, I was a musician for a long time, so uh, that I have uh, spent my time in some darker places uh, my earlier life, but not anymore. Uh, you can find me at forward-facing.com. That's our website. Uh, my email is eric at forward-facing.com. And those two resources will get to you. If anything that was intriguing for you, um, it, after hearing this, uh, I have a YouTube channel that you can just, it's under my name, J. Eric Gentry, okay. PhD. Yeah. And there's lots of free videos on that that you make available to you. And, um, you know, if I can be of service to anybody listening to this, then, uh, then reach out to me and I'll do whatever I can to be helpful. That's awesome. And I know you said you have a, a new book coming out relatively, or I guess you're finishing it off. I don't know how soon it will come out, but. Uh, just published uh, one last month that's pretty exciting. It's it's more of a textbook. It's called Trauma Competency for the 21st Century, and it's it's kind of looking through the stuff that I talked about in the first part of this talk about using the active ingredients and how to deliver those to to clients in more of a traditional uh, psychotherapy approach. But slated to be released this summer, I have forward facing trauma therapy. Uh, for the layperson, and that will will be called uh, forward facing freedom. Hmm. And yeah. we've been fighting on the subtitle. The subtitle now is healing the past, transforming the present, and a future on purpose. Oh, that's nice. Yes, I love that. Mm -hmm. Well, I can you know tell people to run out and get the book because <laughs> been reading the when. Uh, the forward facing trauma therapy is just amazing. And so I, I think it is important as lay people. Um, like you said, there's nobody who's escaping this. And, you know, the more we can help ourselves, help our partners, help our children, um, the better off we're all going to be. We can all walk around doing the wet noodle with each other <laughs> and co regulate. And, and yeah, and you know, what's what's really uh, cool about that, uh, Leah, is, is something that you mentioned earlier is that the way that we serve all those people is that we keep ourselves in a regulated autonomic nervous system. So, it, you know, it's kind of back to the old, put your mask on first mm -hmm. yeah. uh, thing so that I'm in optimal shape that I can then bring the best of myself to those relationships. And, you know, um, alpha safe, pack safe. Yeah, yeah. I love that. Uh -huh. Thank you so much. This is you are welcome awesome. so much. Yes, thank you. Okay.